0: The unrest, the unrest podcast podcast, 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 podcast. Welcome to the unrest podcast. I'm Caitlin Stansel, and I'm Madeline Green. If you are not already
1: subscribed to the unrest podcasts, do it or die. <laughs> and if you like what you hear check our bios out you can donate money to us because why not give us money for what <laughs> we're doing here
0: <laughs> no, the but entertainment
1: really. is on point
0: <laughs> therefore donate three dollars for the cause <laughs> <laughs> and the cause is that hopefully at halloween we can do a really fun live episode but we need your help to get there to do something fun for it so yeah, if you like what you hear, donate, and you know we're not just about receiving; we also want to give. So we're doing a giveaway, and this we're giveaway, givers. <laughs> this giveaway is another round of our boozy sticker collection and a gift card to help us get to 1,000 Instagram followers. So share us with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your significant others, whoever your you share with, your frenemies. You know we love sharing these stories with all of you. So help us spread more of the spooky love out there. And speaking of spooky love,
1: this week's real life haunt is a treat. Her name is April Edwards and she is on TikTok. She's into the Appalachian folklore and folk magic. And she's also a sociologist, which is pretty cool. Let me pull up what her exact TikTok handle is. So if you want, you can go follow her.
0: You know, I never realized that this Appalachian folklore and folk magic was such a big thing. But, you know, I'm seeing more and more of it on TikTok now. And it's so interesting. Sure. And so
1: her handle is at April
0: Edwards
1: with two S's at the end. So definitely go check her out and see all the fun, spooky stories that she. She shares on there but it was awesome to get to talk to her and not only did she share with us you know her Appalachian heritage and that kind of thing she also shared some paranormal stories as well it's a little longer real life hunt but it's definitely worth it so take a listen
2: my name's April Edwards and I've lived in Appalachia my entire life and in West Virginia which is the only state that's entirely in Appalachia so when I was a kid, and my grandma was always, she would, she had the craziest, to me at the time, it was the craziest superstition. She would always have a simmer pot on. She would have me putting clothes and oranges, just, I mean, random stuff. I thought, where in the world as I get older, you know, I, it was like arts and crafts for me. So I thought, okay, yeah, this is all right. But, and then, I kind of started, then you take West Virginia history, which is a difficult class. And I started learning a lot about all the people, how long people have lived here and the struggles that have gone, not just West Virginia, but in Appalachia. And it was a really difficult class. Like, I don't even know if my 13 year old brain was developed enough to handle it. But, you know, I I was on track. I always wanted to be like, therapist or psychologist and that's when I I am a sociologist and I started at that time thinking about things outside of ourselves that we don't really control you know that you make the best with and in Appalachia there's kind of like a fatalistic perspective so I kind of wanted to think why do people here think that way and that's what got me it started at about that age when I started thinking hmm what is it in Appalachia that why are we always seen as like Outsiders, and why are we kind of not necessarily the stereotype so much, but why are we so isolated? And and that class helped a lot, you know, about the rural area and it's difficult to migrate and everything. And that's how I got started into the folklore. It it also, it, my grandmother had explained to me around that same time that had a lot to do her perspective with a lot of this stuff had a lot to do with she was born in nineteen. 19- 1908 her I guess it was her cousins in the 1700s had gotten lost and some the Native Americans was a Shawnee tribe the Shawnee nation you know they were like on the other side of the mountain literally and they ended up they found these three children well they found one of them made it back but they found two children and they took them in and my grandma always told me April, I want you to remember that's what happened. When you read history, that's not necessarily what has happened. And it's kind of explained to me like what oral tradition was. And you know, I and I have seen if you go to Ancestry, it'll it tells you something completely different. That's that's not right, you know. But that always had me thinking, you know, you can't let your oral traditions go. And of course, some of them are superstitions and outdated. You, you just take that grain of salt and the knowledge and information that you get from it. And, you know, now, nowadays we can do research. So that's how I got into looking into folklore. And then it turns into a rabbit hole. (laughs) Appalachian folklore is basically oral tradition that we've passed on to each other and it's based upon community. More or less, more so, even kind of your family, which will be your community, but also like people that lived on the other side of the mountain or people. It's people in proximity to you because Appalachia's really difficult. The terrain's really difficult in a lot of areas. So the folklore is what I get, you know, I say elders, but it's what your grandparents or your aunts or uncles or people at church will pass down to you and tell you oh, hey, did you know that that used to be the old schoolhouse? We only had one schoolhouse here. And there's always something, it's your elders want you to know that there was, they're here, but that they shared the land here with the Native Americans and, you know, everyone who lived here prior to us being here. It's a conglomerate of descendants in this area, and it's their acknowledgement of one another and the past and the history that they that we've brought together with each other it's so it's a combined ideology maybe that we all share and respect so it, you you'll, you'll see people discuss it but there's really not a lot of bickering it's kind of i think it's really unique because you know in a lot of other areas that you're like you know, they're just telling ghost stories they're just doing this and that but with here you know we'll go ahead and say there is a lot there are a lot of just burial places a lot of really sacred places to different cultures we will we'll respect and we make sure to not bother or disturb those things and you know you may hear the most insane reason and you if you look deep enough you'll find the real reason you know just because it's respectful or what have you but and that's in a nutshell what Appalachian folklore is it's the individuals who lived here and were isolated here and became one another's neighbors and they shared their cultures with each other. And because of the isolation, it just stuck really well. And some of the stuff makes sense to me because I would think, okay, that's just polite. You don't want to roam around someone's house. But then it was, no, you're not allowed to go out that door. And I think, what in the world? So I think some of it could be fatalistic, but like you said, I'll go back to the woods story. Sometimes things did happen to kids in the woods and maybe they didn't understand. I mean, but my grandmother was adamant about fairies and fae and would tell me, you don't want to find a leprechaun. If you catch a leprechaun, be the last thing you'd ever want to do, you know? And I'd think, what in the world? So it's partially based in truth to them because it depends upon your perspective. And then when you live there, you know, like we live here. And you know that there's, of course, you know, we have black bears. Luckily, I'm, I'm afraid of things that can eat me. So luckily we don't have grizzlies. But we have black bears, deer, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, you don't have to really you just be cautious as anyone would in the woods. But there's so much that's not known. And when I say it's not been explored, I don't mean that no one's ever been there. I just mean that it, it people are very it's not very often that people are in these areas and there are some areas that the terrain's just so horrible you can't reach. So that leaves that question in your mind of what could possibly be going on there. And since there's no answer, there's a lot of folklore and superstition that fills that, that fills in the question. So, and also there, you know, people, all kinds of different types of people, hunters, people who hike, people who aren't even from here will go to the Appalachian Trail, and it's not difficult to to go to YouTube or Google or something and find their stories as well. So that a lot of, I think a lot of where that comes from is we're not quite sure, you know, I we don't know that there aren't things living there. I mean, you scientifically, if you wanted to run it through the (laughs) process, it would think, oh, no, there's nothing living there. But Bigfoot's a real thing to me. I mean, I don't know that he does not exist. You can't prove it. There's a lot, you know, it's better to just kind of err on the side of caution. I mean, the Mothman sightings, there's like, there have been articles, movies made about this. So the fear is real, if that makes sense. I mean, I mean, it's just the truth that you will go out in the woods and you'll be there at night and you'll hear something that sounds like singing. I mean, you can't explain that. I can't explain it and I don't like to sound like I've lost my mind when I explain it to people, but it, you know, it's something that really happened. You know, your senses really are a little bit altered and you do feel like you're in an altered space an altered area. And that's just the, that's the best way to describe the don't go out in the woods at night. There's just so much that's there that you hear that you can't explain. Our parents, and caregivers always just made sure that you, you knew what it could be. There wasn't any sugarcoating it. Like, we were told as kids, don't go in the woods and scream out your name. And we just didn't question it, you know? It was like, okay. And then when you're in the woods with your friends and you're sitting in your treehouse and you get, you know, creeped out, you kind of think, oh, grandma might be right about Okay, the Appalachian stories that I've heard, obviously, you know, there's Mothman. I, I haven't heard anything about Mothman anymore, you know, that everybody else has, you know, because there's been a movie, people have gotten into it, it's a pop culture thing now. So um, that story is one that, you know, sticks, sticks out the most. And, you know, I know it sounds like the most obvious one, but it, around here, for us, it's not really about Mothman. Or whatever we saw. It's about the silver bridge collapsing. That's when Mothman was seen prior to that and is always seen prior to incidents like negative circumstances. It's almost as if he's either coming to give a warning or, has, you know, or people see him as a, you know, and think, okay, there's something's gonna happen with a gut instinct. Or we've never had a bridge fall in this area like that. And everyone, like my grandmother knew someone who passed away because it's a small community, really rare and strange, bizarre reason it have like a loose bolt or something. I really can't recall right now, but like that was ingrained in us as children. You know, when you hear your grandma talk about her friend that passed away from the silver bridge you know, collapsing, that's a real thing. So then they make, that makes Mothman real because they really saw that and they're really making that connection. And It's, it makes you also put correlations together with other things. So when you're growing up like that, it kind of teaches you to trust your gut instinct on things a little bit more. We're constantly told, you know, if you see him be prepared because sometimes, you know, he's been seen and then positive things occur, but usually not, you know, again, it's folklore. So you have to take it with a grain of salt on who told you you want, you know, you would definitely trust somebody that's older. Your friends may think, oh, well, what do you know? You've just seen the movie. But, you know, it still makes an imprint upon you and upon the way that you think. So it really is the one that it, it gets to the heart of everybody. In West Virginia, I mean, Ohio as well, because the Gallipolis area, there were a lot of battles with the Shawnee. And that ground has seen a lot of just chaos and negativity and death Having all that there, and then the governments come in at different points and made top secret areas where they may be just storing bales of hay, who knows, but, you know, that adds to it. There's so many connections with Mothman and everyone that lives here that that would probably, I, I just, I got to give a shout out on that one, <laughs> because I, I think that's the best way for people who don't live here to understand even if this never was made into a movie, if it had never turned into pop culture, we still have memorials for the day that the bridge fell, and and there have been a couple floods, really really bad floods, and he's been he'll be spotted before that occurs as well. But when it comes to him being he's being seen before the the bridge falling, it wasn't just like once or twice. It was a couple people. You can Google this and research it, but a couple of people, you know, felt they were in their cars and felt like he was following them. And, you know, so that association with him being near the car, you know, there's, there are a lot of correlations you could put together. They, you know, they might make sense to you and they might not. Well, I'm 49 years old and I know people who will say, Oh my gosh, this is the first time I've had someone close to me pass away. And the first time I was five she was my Aunt Sissy it was my dad's my dad was the youngest and she was the oldest and they were really close and she she was terminally ill and I was just really close with her she was she was so fun she'd let me do anything if I had pulled the the dog's tail she would lie for me you know and just <laughs> little things that you remember like that and I remember all that she would you know my caregivers had nicknames for me you know and my dad called me pumpkin because he called me pumpkin because mm-hmm. my hair was orange and my mom convinced him, can we just call her pumpkin? And she always called me her precious angel. I didn't know that she was sick. You know, they didn't tell me until the very end. And it was just that, you know, I'd say, why can't I see aunt Sissy? And it was, you know, she's really sick. And, and I understood what that meant and why I couldn't see her, but I'd miss her. And so during that time period when she was ill, she would tell me april you'll always I'll you know you'll always be my precious angel but when i'm no longer here i'll go, I'll be your guardian angel and i i said okay you know and i knew what that was My mom played piano in churches you know at the church so I, the church is is really ingrained in Appalachian folklore and so when she passed away my dad was crying that's the only time i ever saw my dad cry and then my mom told me, you know, Aunt Sissy's passed away. The first thing I said was, "Oh no, she's my favorite one." But I have a guardian angel now, you know. They, everybody, mom, everybody started crying because that's obviously we're all sad and in a bad spot. So, you know, and I used to have like experiences after she passed away. I could smell her smell, you know. I'm I've started kindergarten early. I may have been in first grade, but. I remember feeling like the bottom of my bed, like an indentation, and then be like a warm spot. So I always I felt comforted, as though you know she really is there. She really is looking out for me. And then when I was eight, I was with my dad, and we were hanging Christmas cards, and he had a heart attack and died. That was in 1981. So it's been such a long time that I can discuss it without a lot of emotion you know and when he died like when he had that heart attack he he he, le- he fell into the wall and he let made a hole a pretty sizable hole and now that I can look back on the time I lived in that house it was as if that was a portal and you know I had had imaginary friends that did poltergeisty stuff and you know and I would get in trouble for it I, I don't even know how to explain the strange things that started happening after that happened I mean, it was it was stuff I had never experienced before, and you know my mom wouldn't believe me sometimes, but the all oh, my imaginary friends did it because I was a child. Now, I mean, like a four or five year old. Now we're at the point where I'm. I don't want to get in trouble with my mom. I don't want her to take my bike away. I, I'm not lying. You know, I see these, these. You know, just gr so many random things that would happen at that house. We would. There was a stereo one time, one of those old console ones. My mom, I was asleep, and she said, can you turn this stereo off? Because back in the 80s, you know, you had boom boxes and stuff, and parents wouldn't know how to turn it off. So I thought, what in the world? Turn it off. And she said, I can't. And I'm half asleep. And then she says, April, I unplugged it, and I can't turn it off. And I walked over and just turned it off. Hmm. I have no idea how I did that. I have no idea why that happened. You know, like, I haven't even, I don't think I've ever even really shared that one, because, like, that was kind of normal, it's sad to say. (laughs) So, growing up around that, and, you know, my mom took me to therapy, obviously, I mean, it it was in the 80s, but still, after you have something like that happen, you know, she took me to therapy and everything, and they never discouraged me having the conversations like that. You know, maybe they thought I had an active imagination, or it was my way of dealing with people I love passing away, but... It it taught me I did I don't fear death terribly I I certainly enjoy living and I want to be here as long as possible and then just devastated when people I love or pets or anyone passes away but it it made me see the other side a lot more differently than I think kids my age even it wasn't like I felt more mature it's just that you know as I hear oh their grandparents have passed away I would think. Oh, that's going to keep happening to you. I'm sorry. You know, I just had a different outlook on it, as well as the paranormal, because it almost seemed normal to me. And it was almost comforting in a way. And I learned very young through my different, my grandmother, of course, she was really into Appalachian folk magic. And she would always tell me, April, you just, you tell them to go away. You tell them to, to leave you alone and go away. You know, like learning that at a very young age makes you almost function with no fear regarding it. So here I am using Ouija boards willy-nilly all the time. Just so much stuff like that that I didn't, you know, other people's parents would be like, oh, my God, I know how to read tarot cards, too. And, you know, so then they're like, are you a witch? And I was like, I don't really even know what that means. That's just something I see on uh, Wizard of Oz or, you know back then that really there really wasn't a lot of witchcraft charm that's that show I was trying to think of. There weren't so many of those things out there for you to reference and I would think, No, I'm not I'm not a good witch or a bad witch. I'm not no, that's not the way, you know, and also I would tell people, I'm a kid, why would you say that to me? <laughs> but as an adult now, I can understand, you know, I'm asking them, I'll say, Oh, well you're a Leo too, you know, we're supposed to be proud of this and I guess it did sound like i would just been I don't know maybe hanging out with hippies or something I don't know you know I think a lot of people were kind of taken aback by that and of course you know you want to be accepted you don't want to say things that freak people out so I would learn like "Mm, you better not say that people really would think if you say oh yeah so I have these dreams and the next day that exact same thing happens you know like when you tell people that, you know, they think, "Oh, well, she's she has a great imagination." And I would just think, "Okay, but <laughs> I do. I, I enjoy, you know, watching cartoons and all the uh, that fun stuff with my imagination." But I, I'm I'm telling you the truth. I did dream that, and how would I know? I'm nine. And my dad, he was only forty eight, but he had been in. He was older than my mom. He had been in Korea and Vietnam, and he had a lot of health issues and was in a lot of pain and he never ever said anything about oh I wish I wasn't here anymore or anything like that but you know he would say I'm telling you what living every day in all this pain is difficult and I kind of correlated that with maybe he has some peace now so I never he never connected with me after like he was gone I think when he passed he immediately moved on all of my other relatives and even friends and people that I've known and loved to have passed since then. I'll get a sign. I'll have a dream. Something will happen, but not with him. I'm had one occasion and that was the one that I really was like, that's what I'm going to share with them because I have so many stories, but there's only one time that I can recall him um, connecting with me. Um, and I, at the time, and this was probably around 2000, um, and 2010 um, me and my husband we lived in the house in this part of town and in that part of town that has this area of town that it used to be the main part of the city and now it's the older portion of the city and it has a lot of it's, na- it's named after the Native Americans who lived there um, there's a lot of Native American culture that's still there a lot of different areas that are undisturbed um so it has a really different energy. Plus, the house that I lived in was built in nineteen twenty-nine and had been in a flood in nineteen thirty-seven. And it, it was, I mean, it you could tell where the water line had made it up to almost the second floor. That house just had so just such an odd vibe to it. On this particular circumstance, this particular night, my husband works in a hospital. He doesn't usually work the overnight shift, the 11 to 7 shift, but he did that night. I would kind of stay up as little, you know, as late as I could and then go to bed because, you know, I'm pleasant, I wasn't used to sleeping alone or whatever. And that night I had done laundry. And I had, that house was old. It had that floor furnace, those floor furnaces with the grate in it. And I would always hang my clothes above it. it and this is in the winter, with the heat being on because, and I'd watch it to make sure it's not a hazard or anything. And I, you know, would just let it dry that way because a lot, it was easier that way. So this particular night I had done the laundry and hung up clothes there. And I would always make sure to take them down before I went to bed. So I fell asleep on the couch, you know, I woke up and I went over and I'm half asleep. So I grabbed all the clothes and just laid them on the, the dryer in the kitchen or what have you and went on up to bed. You know, when you fall asleep, you're in that kind of in-between where some people get sleep paralysis, I think. Maybe you're in that stage and, you know, you're, you're kind of awake, but you're not quite sure. You really, but you're trying, also, you're trying to go to sleep. You know, I, I've never, I've never heard voices or heard anything like that. I'll just put that out there. But I've heard, I heard a voice and it wasn't like it was in my head and I'm dreaming it. It was as though someone was talking to me. Like right there next to me, just said, "April, get up." I I remember thinking, I don't know, I'm, and I do talk in my sleep, so it may have said it out loud. I said, "I'm almost asleep," just kind of, yeah, I wasn't even really paying attention. And then I heard, "You need to get up." I kept thinking, "What? Who's talking to me?" And but I'm not still not oriented enough to put two and two together and think. It, open your eyes is somebody in your house and then I felt something move my right shoulder and set me up in bed and then I heard my I hadn't heard my dad's voice in probably at least 30 some years at that point and I heard April get up now and as soon as I set up I smelled something burning and then I, I snapped out of it and just so I went down the stairs and I started coughing because there was smoke. I had a pink tank top that I, it was made out of like a chiffon, whatever, I don't know, something that dried really quickly. And I missed it. And when I went over to the grate from the floor furnace, which was right under the bed where I was sleeping, I looked and the only thing I saw was just the little hook end of a green coat hanger that had been on. And I looked. And down in the furnace, there was there were there was green melted plastic on the grate, and there was melted plastic plastic on the the furnace. I had to set for a second, and I called my husband at like three something in the morning and told him what happened. And he, all right, well I'll check it out, but I I can't explain that. I, I can't. I don't know how to explain that. I mean, I had that house. I had as many crazy experiences in as the Miller Drive house, the one that my dad died in. And I think maybe the water from the flood. I know that there's a lot of energy carried in water. I think perhaps that may have had something to do with it as well. This is 2007. My mom had gotten surgery. She stayed with me at my house, you know, therapy and rehab and everything. And, you know, I'd help her out because she had to have her knee removed and she had all kinds of problems. And we we didn't know what was wrong with her. She ended up, we found out later, she had the And she passed in 2009. This was during the point when my mom had just moved out. I had, I, I mean, I'm a sociologist, but I sat down and was her social worker. And I called and I found her a place to live. She had money. I'd say, hey, hey, April, hey, girl, help me out. And I said, sure. And we'd always had trouble. And, you know, but it was just that we bickered. And stuff. It was, you know, I loved her. She loved me, and she was so grateful that I, I got her a handicap apartment and a really a nice apartment. And, you know, she loved her grandkids and loved she loves kid love kids. So she was right between the swimming pool and the playground, and she would give them like the frozen popsicles, the ones that come in the netted bag. You know, she would just have those coming out of her ears. The kids would stop by and knock on her sliding glass door and say can I have one of Mama Sandy's popsicles? Can I have one for my sister? And I, she would just be like, yes, give them to all of them. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. anyway, so she's happily getting along in her apartment and she was in a wheelchair living independently. And I went to sleep that night and I had a dream. And this dream is like no other dream. And I always have, like, I would call them precognitive dreams. I dreamed she would be in the hospital she would, we'd have to go to the hospital with her a lot. And by the end of her life, I would end up taking her to her, her treatments and picking her up. And it just got to be where I was used to being at a hospital or someone getting a hold of me and saying, Hey, your mom's in the hospital, but it's not going to, you know, they're going to let her out this afternoon. They just had to do tests and kept her overnight. She had really good insurance from my dad passing away. And so they, we always could afford that. So that was, we were very lucky in that way. But I dreamed that I went to the hospital and I went to the room that she had been in and she wasn't there. So I went to the nurse's station and said, Hey, you know, have you moved my mom? It was so, it was just so routine at that point. They told me, Yeah, she's down at the end of this hall here. And it was a hallway I didn't recognize. And that hospital was one that. I've been in my entire life I remember thinking I I don't know I don't know where this is heading I'm gonna stop in here so I stopped in a room and there was just someone cleaning it up I thought to myself I went down another hallway and I was lost I thought okay I'm just going back to the nurses' station so I turned around and then all of a sudden it's completely dark just black all around me and I'm standing outside of my grandmother's house which is like probably 20 miles away from there but my grandma passed in 2001, and I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm looking around, and the house right now still has a tree had fallen on it, and, you know, it's in disarray, and I just felt so sad. All of a sudden, you know, I didn't see her body, and, you know, you always had people talk about the white light, but I saw her face, and it was, it was like, well, she looked like an angel, but she had white hair, and it, she looked like herself. But there was light. It was literally like someone had cut a hole through the darkness. And here's my grandmother's face. I can see her almost like she's on the other side of a – I did feel like there was a barrier because I got so excited. And I remember having all those, I guess, endorphins of just joy. And I said, Grandma, oh, my God, I'm so glad that you're here. I've missed you so much. And, like, I wanted to hug her. And you know, she she was like, I love you so much. I want you to know I'm always here for you. I need to talk to you, April. And she'd say that to me all the time. And and if I heard that I knew, ooh, something serious is happening. So I said, What? I said, What, grandma? And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you've had to go through the loss that you had to go through with your dad because my grandma and grandpa helped raise me in place of my dad after he passed and I'm so sorry that happened at such a young age and that you're so young. And I know you don't know how young you still are. I don't want you to not be ready for this because I know you can handle it, but your mom's going to have to come with me soon. And that's, there's nothing we can do about it. And I said, no, grandma, no. And she said, I remember, she said, I remember how hard it was because just to interject, whenever my they took my dad to the hospital, and then, of course, they worked on him for a while, but whenever they called back to the house where I was, it was my grandmother, and I answered the phone, and she said, April, your dad's gone, and I said, Grandma, I know, so she, you know, we had that connection, knew that that with me, and she said, you know, I know what you went through, and I know you you knew, and I want you to know now. And not because I'm trying to put you through, you know, I don't want you to go through this, but you don't understand how much you're going to have to go through. And you're going to have to take care of all this. And she was referencing her house and her land. I didn't understand that. And I started crying. And I said, no, but I want to go with you. I just want to go with you right now for a little bit. Can I just stay here with you? Just like you would any loved one that you miss. And when people say, if you see your loved one in a dream and they tell you to come with them, it's not them. I believe that because she was emphatic. She said, no, no, it, no, you're not coming with me now. I'm sorry. And you can't come with her either. It's it, But I'm, I'm sorry you have to, you're going to have to take care of this. And just, <laughs> she would always say, well, be a good girl all the time. Um, and she passed when I was 27 and I would go to Woodstock 94. She was like, well, be a good girl. That's all I can say, you know, and <laughs> move on. And that's what she says. She was like, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm always going to be here and just be a good girl. Then it was black. And then I woke up and I woke up crying hysterically. And my husband was like, what is wrong? And I said, my mom died. My mom's died. And it was, I mean, and I stood up. I mean, I couldn't breathe. I'm sobbing. I was like, she's, my mom's gone. And he knows that I had those dreams. And he said, okay, we'll we'll call her, call your brother. And I said, okay, what time is it? He was like, it's 640 in the morning. And I, then I thought, I looked at my phone and I thought, okay, no one's contacted me. I don't want to wake her up. I knew that she, you know, she took, Pain medication, and sometimes would stay up late. And you know, if she was getting rest, I was thinking, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to wake her up, you know. Okay, okay, you know, like I, it took me a while to orient myself in this world, and to convince myself that my mother had not already passed. I did. I calmed down. Okay, now fast forward to May of two thousand nine. My mom had been she has leukemia. She's not, you know, she's been, she's taken treatments, but I had taken her to a doctor's appointment and the doctor said, if you start getting a red line in your arm, go to the hospital immediately. We don't want any blood clots happening. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, that sounds really serious and it is, but we were used to those kind of things. And so I was at her house and I said, mom, your arms looking red. I don't see any of the signs she said i know i'm going to go to the hospital she said i'm going to call the ho- i'm going to you know go tomorrow and i said okay and or she said or in the night i mean i'm i'm watching it and so you know, she made it through the night everything was fine but she did go to the hospital the next day and she went to that same hospital that she always went to and i went there they she said well, well they're going to have to send me to columbus which is the next you know where we are, where we live. That's the next big like facility if you need like advanced. And she it was cancer at that point. She it's the James Cancer Center at, that's in at the OSU campus, and they're really great at what they do. And so they had referred her there. And I said, well, they're gonna because sometimes they would fly her, and I didn't know that she was in that bad of condition. But uh, she was like, no, I, I'm stable. I can drive. You know, where they're gonna take me. And I said, okay. And she said, well, why don't you and your husband, you know, why don't you and Cam, why don't your husband, why don't you guys come up? And that, you know, she basically gave me some money and said, it was our anniversary, my my husband's anniversary. She said, why don't you guys come up, get a hotel room, have a nice dinner, you know, then then you can come and see me you know, and what have you. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea because we kind of had been planning. Before we left and went up there, we were at the house. And I was thinking, should we leave tonight and go and spend the night or should we just wait and do a check in tomorrow? We were trying to decide the phone rang and it was the hospital. And they said, essentially, your mother, we had to do a procedure on her. She's still in recovery, but we need to do another surgery because things have kind of taken a turn and we need to get your authorization. You know, I said, yes, obviously, because it, it needed to be done. Uh, It still made me panic, and so I I was like, well, we're leaving now, and we're going to drive straight up. You know, we'll be – this was in the daytime. I'm sorry if I've gotten my times confused, but this was in the next morning when we had planned on leaving. So we we went ahead and, like, got it through everything together and left at, like, noon instead of leaving in the evening. We get to the campus, the the hospital, and I went to – I've been there before, and I went to the hospital, the portion of the hospital because it's huge. That she'd always been in, and I walked to the to the oncology portion and went to the desk and said, you know, hey, my name's April Edwards and this is my mom. Could you tell me what room she's in? And they said, they they said, well, she was over here, but they've moved her. And I said, okay. I said is she. And they said, well, she's she's down this hall, you know, and turn right. And I went down that hallway and I started having that feeling like I was in that dream and I turned right and it was, there wasn't anything there. It was just like, it was like a linen closet or something. And I kind of panicked. I mean, I got a sinking feeling in my stomach and I said, "Cam, I can't find my mom. That's my husband. And he said, she's okay. We're in the wrong side of the hospital. She said, if she's not here, we'll have to go back out and walk to the other main entrance. And I said, but I can't find her. I don't know where she is. And he was like, well, you'll be, f-. you know, he was thinking I'm panicked and you'll be fine. So I finally get over to the other, you know, I find the right area. And apparently this team of doctors had been waiting to talk to me. And they took me aside into the, the little room that you never want to have to go in. And they said, you know, we realized she has leukemia. And unfortunately, you know, she is now in her bone marrow and the, it's just aggressively moved to the point where we you know we might have to start looking at amputations and that's not how you you deal with it that's not a sustainable way of dealing with it i immediately said my mom's a DNR and they said well she is on support right now i said and she can't breathe by herself and they said no and i said okay you can't we can't do that we can't keep her like that she has She's begged me her entire life, and especially after she got sick, to not do that. And they were like, it's absolutely your decision. You, it, It's completely up to you. This is a difficult decision. We understand if you need time. And I said, no, no, she's been waiting for me to get here. I, you know, I said, I know that. And they knew what I meant. I said, no, she's not. She's not going to go. I said, "She's. this isn't what she wants. And then they said, I remember my brother was there and me and my brother, I, we were not getting along at all and didn't for five years after I had to contest her will, but that's a whole other thing. And he was there and he, he was crying and they said, you know, we have to have the consent of both of her next to kin. And I said, look at me. How many times has she said to you, I will haunt you if you let me lay around on a ventilator. If it's my time to go, let me go. And he was like, "Yeah, and everything." And it, it, finally, they said, "Okay, you know that it's a you've made a difficult decision. It's a very kind decision. We know this is hard for you. Would you like to be with her? Would you like to go sit with her?" And I said, "I got to be with my dad. I'll definitely stay with my mom and my brother. My brother was there when my dad passed, but he was only three, and he doesn't remember it." Um, and my brother said, "No." No, I'm not going. And my mom and my brother were had, they had been having a lot of arguments and disagreements for about a year at this point. And she was angry with him. The last time I'd talked to her, she was really angry with him. So he said, I'm not. I don't want to go. Well, she was in the ICU portion, and they had moved her to like a more private area where so we could go in and sit with her. And he wouldn't come in. He would come in, but then he would go back out and walk in the hallway. I mean, I just sat there and held her hand and talked to her. She was deaf in one ear, and I could never remember which one. And she always told me, I'm not going to tell you so that I can put my phone up to my ear and not hear you guys, you know, kidding with me. (laughs) And I thought to myself, it doesn't matter because she could always hear if you got up close to her. So, you know, I would talk to her and stuff. And there was this wonderful nurse that sat there with me who started working in nursing the year I was born. And had a daughter my age and so we we, you know, had a good rapport and she could, you know, she was great, great bedside manner, kept me calm, it, it turned the monitor away. Every time my brother would come in, it would spike and I could see the I could see it flash, but I couldn't see the other side. And I finally said, Get the hell out of here. Go. Nobody wants you here. You don't wanna be here, no one wants you here. Go. And he looked like he was about to cry, and my husband was like come on we'll go do something else and about five minutes after he left she passed but she did it was as if she did not want him there and the crux to it all that I didn't know was my phone had been in and out of service and I get to my phone and she had left me a voicemail and all it said was call me back April please please call me back you know I think that that Going and sitting with her while she passed, you know, I didn't get to call her back because that was before her surgery that she didn't wake up from, and I had to authorize they go ahead and continue. She had called me, so you know, when she was lucid and awake, when she was, you know, knew what was going on, she tried to get a hold of me to tell me something. I I, I figured out what it was. It had to do with her will and everything, but it still. For me, it was like, I know you'll stay with me. I know you'll be here. When you get here, it'll be okay, and I won't have to do. You know, I felt that that was the message she had for me in the end. That I don't know how to explain any of that either. Like everything my grandmother told me was true. I had to legally emancipate myself from my mom post mortem, so as to not be responsible for the assets. That were once my grandmother, and grandfather's, my mom's. So that's what my grandma meant by you have to take care of all this because it was behind in taxes and it was, it was bad. And i I'm, I'm you're not going to pin this on me. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I did have to take care of it all. And it really was, you know, I'm 49 and that's one of the most difficult things I had ever, ever had to do in my life like what would i've done without the paranormal i don't know how else to put it i don't i don't know how I, I don't know how i would have accepted all that had i not you know spoken with someone to help me out it wasn't someone who's still living i don't you know I, I don't know how to explain that to people i don't i've only told that entire story to a few of my friends and all of them cry because close to my mom too and Either like I didn't know you went through that, and I was like I I didn't want to go. I I didn't want to, and I don't share it. And you know why should I? And it settled with her too. Like I, she loved Cardinals and especially the red ones. Entire life, anytime I would go to like you know the little the little things at school in elementary where you go buy your mom and dad gifts. They set up a little gift shop. I would always find something with a cardinal on it. So she would always, and it would always be bells or something. So. And there's always a cardinal that stays out at my bird feeder. And actually there's been a cardinal and a female cardinal. And pro- I guess they're babies now. There's so many of them out there. So I, I think of her every time I see. And I know that the red card, you know, there's supposed to be a sign that someone's from the other side is there with you, you know, watching over or coming to visit or saying hi. They always give me a little bit of comfort when I see them because I it just reminds me it reminds me of her and and so far as my grandmother, I mean I, I I almost don't say I interact with her, but I'll get little signs from her all the time. Just little things. I mean, it it's very bizarre. I don't I hate to say I feel protected and spiritually. I don't walk around and just play with Ouija boards willy-nilly anymore but you know I'm not trying to have to be protected spiritually but I, I just feel I don't know I, at at peace maybe and that kind of plays into why I'm I guess I don't have a, a quote-unquote fear of death as much as a lot of people because like you said you know we all fear the unknown
1: I definitely love this real life haunt because it is a variety of different things. I love everything from hearing about the Mothman, which is something, you know, me, I'm obsessed with aliens and Bigfoot. I don't really use the Mothman's name much in my vocabulary because I don't really know much about it. So it definitely gave me a reason to look up other cryptids besides my favorites. And so I really enjoyed her kind of telling me about the Mothman because I did know that it was mostly focused on these areas, like in the Appalachian. But I just, I honestly, the only time I had really heard of him was watching this show on
0: um sci-fi. So, <laughs> well, it's a, there's a great movie, Mothman Prophecies, which I think she talks about. So, you know, check that movie out. It's, it's a really good sort of representation of one of those paranormal sort of stories with the cryptid oh also you know her talking about the fairies and and wooded areas it made me think of your brown mountain Lights story from like the very beginning of our podcast it seems like and how like one of the possible explanations of why people see like these lights in the mountains are fairies or that it could be so, you know, I think maybe that's one of those sort of Appalachian folklore stories as well.
1: Well, yeah, and it's just interesting with you know, Native Americans too. She does talk about that. And and really that these stories are almost, you know, stories passed down from generation to generation and they just keep going. And I think that's really neat. I also enjoyed her other stories. She's she's experienced a lot of loss and just the way that she's able to kind of overcome that and share those and share the, the growth that she's kind of gone through to be where she is now is pretty cool. So I appreciate April for sharing those. Again, check her out on TikTok at April Edwards with two S's and learn all about your
0: Appalachian folklore and folk magic. And hey, if you want to share your story with us, it's real easy to do so. All you got to do is email us at theunrestpodcast at gmail.com
1: or you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook. TikTok, WikWok, me MeBob. <laughs> We're all over the place. <laughs> Don't forget about our giveaway on Instagram as well. And until next time.
0: Unrest in, in peace. peace.